This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. This is the Coast and Country podcast from the BBC. You can find the terms and conditions on our website at bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4. Today you can hear Open Country with Helen Mark. For this week's Open Country, I'm in Speyside and it's that winter's day, there's snow everywhere you look and then when you look up through the trees to the sky actually there's still a little waft of snow in the air but I think actually it's the wind just dusting the snow off the branches rather than another snowstorm coming in and then I'm just going to look over this stone bridge and down, sharp drop down to a burn below this is Nocando Burn, it's a tributary of the Spade and uh, it's in fairly full torrent if I look further up the river that peak stained water tumbling down over the rocks this burn has actually fed the community in this small remote area of the Scottish Highlands it feeds the Nokanda wool mill but Nokanda's survival has also been about the people who have had the determination and the passion to take well what nature offers them and make the mill endure for more than two centuries The slamming of steel doors and the throb of a digger, well, they're not really the noises you would expect in a wool mill, but Nokando is actually going through a major restoration. And the ramshackle buildings that were here, full of all the equipment, it's all being beautifully restored, and Andrew Wright, you're the project manager. So um, can we wander around a little bit without getting under the workman's feet? We're just going past the old cottage, which is here, which is probably from the early 19th century and the earliest building on the site, where the weaver and his family would have uh, worked from this building here. So single and story, and it's got a corrugated tin roof. Is that the it, original? It, it, it has now, but originally it would have been thatched, and the oh. photographs show yeah. it as, as such. Probably would have been a straw thatch in those days in, the, these, in this part of the world, in that uh, one of the interest of the site is the fact that it wasn't just a wool mill, it was also a small croft, it was a working farm. So they're able to survive not only on the strength of the textiles, but on the strength of running the farm and and selling cattle at a time when cattle prices were quite good in the Highlands. And the mill was working from 17... Well, it was certainly working by 1784, but there were probably there's textile activity that went on here because certainly for part of the uh, 19th century, it's on maps of the time as a warp mill, which is for fulling the cloth. It's really for beating the cloth Making process. The tweed, so yes. somewhere somewhere else, the textile production was going on, and we think that that was further up the the burn. Uh, and then they brought the cloth down to here, with being close to the water, where they could carry out the fulling uh, operations. And it's very special because it's so rare now. Well, it's certainly of northern European significance, if I could put it that way, in that it's the last surviving of the district mills in Scotland. There is one at Bridgend on Isla, which was built for the purpose in 1883, where it's still got all its Victorian uh, machinery. But this grew from humble beginnings, and it's managed to keep going all this time, bringing the sheep's wool onto the site. Then they managed to do all the processes. It was scoured, it was washed, and then it went through the carding process. So everything went on in this particular site here in uh, Nakando. A real determination to create fabric in this small holding of buildings. 
but but it's it, that process has been going on almost forever in this area because there are always sheep here and there's always textile production and people in their in their cottages were in their hovels if you like their turf hovels were surviving off that that was one form of income and it's something that the 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 women could do as well within and and the children could also participate in within the household it just it does all those stories makes this place very special because you really have got to see somewhere like this by the river to get a true understanding of what it was all about and and what was created here and how personal it was that the creation of the fabric here well it, it's not just seeing it it's actually hearing it because when the mill is in full production the building shakes with the machinery and it's the smell of the oil and it's the the sound of the water turning the wheel the wheel turning inside and this is why this could never have been a museum we always saw that this had a future as a site for continuing rural craft skills and continuing the old production methods and how close are you to getting those looms back up and working again we're now, bringing that sound we're now, back <laughs> we're now very close indeed uh, the buildings are now coming to completion and the mill will be ready in just a few weeks, which will allow the conservation team to start bringing the old machinery back into the mill so they can start operating once again. What's come round is a realisation that with sites like this, there is a prestige that goes with the cloth that comes off Victorian looms and from a site such as this. There's a long tradition, and that counts nowadays. And some will say that the quality of cloth, of textiles, that you get off Victorian looms is far better than the modern ones. It's just the way that the mechanics work. What's interesting is that, you know, down through the centuries, it has often come down to an individual to run the mill. And that was so right up until the mill closed for this restoration project. And Hugh Jones, you were that last weaver. Yes, I was, I was. I came here in 1975. Uh, There were three of us that actually took the place over. And, well, after about three years, the other two had moved on. And you were left as the sole weaver. Yeah, yeah. I've been here ever since. And it wasn't just the weaving, was it, Hugh, that you had to learn to do? Well, all the machinery, it's not just weaving machinery here, there's the carding and spinning as well, yeah. And the carding, that's the combing of the... That's right, yeah. well, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It's the thing that really, if you like, got me in the first place, was the machinery. I, I instantly loved it. Uh, motorcycles were my thing before that. But, uh, I sold my last one to buy a van to move to Scotland, so work that one out. Yeah. So you're fascinated by the machinery. Well, that's one thing, but you had to learn the craft, and it is quite a complex process. So why would somebody who hadn't that in their blood, as it were, want to come here to Um, this? It's a very creative thing. I mean, I I like the idea of moving up here. I I mean, I love the landscape up here. It's it's large, it's very big, especially... I mean, I come from London, but... um, it, I was immediately um, just happy here, I think, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How did you learn? I learned an awful lot from Duncan, Duncan Stewart. Duncan was 78 when I came here, and he'd worked here since about 1919, 1920. He was badly wounded in the First War, and he came back here, and uh, rather than go back into farming, he came to work for his uncle at the mill. So he learned, and then he passed his skills on to you. That's it, yeah. yeah. I'm just thinking of you, 35 years of working mm. with, with wool, with the fabric. Yeah. I mean, that's a lot of your life, 
to give what was oh, it yeah. like when you had to make that decision to say I'm going you know this is my last threads across the warp or whatever it was quite interesting it was an interesting thought and to be quite honest I was perfectly happy with it I think probably because I knew this was going to happen it wasn't the last it wasn't the last we were just if you like going to sleep for a couple of years that was all you know as long as you wake up again because you know this idea of the individual taking on the mill Uh are you still going to be that individual Uh, I'll still be here I'm trying to get to the point where the place will function perfectly without me and then that will be a job done as far as I can see because look at the building work that's been done this place is good for another hundred years and more and uh, so you know that's way beyond my time and I think the, the trick now will be We've got to get enough craft skill shared between three or four people, working people on the shop floor, because um, it is just a factory, after all. And combine that, though, with other things in the environment. I mean, we have a visitor centre now, and we have an education side as well. So all of that, I think, can combine into really quite an interesting, in- interesting experience. But unless we produce really at a very efficient level uh, we're like anybody else we won't have enough money to survive what you were doing here was built upon the shoulders of others who came before you Mm. so i'm going to try and find out about some of those stories and and you know we could start by going back well to the family Mm. that you learnt from Mm. um, Mm. and that was duncan stewart that's right and his, his son graham Graham was working machinery here between the ages of, I don't, I don't know, 10 to 16 or something, I think, you know, and it's, uh, which I've always found quite amusing. And uh, probably, probably it would have been technically slightly uh, on top of his father, actually, because, to be honest, Duncan was more of a farmer than he was a weaver, and that is not to do him any injustice. But I think, in one sense, it's where his heart was. Graham Stewart, this mm-hmm. mill has passed down through individuals and it has yes. been kept alive for 200 years. And That's your correct. father was part of that. What sorts of processes did he have you doing? Oh, weaving, carding, spinning, everything, everything. Because, uh, see, I worked with him until I went to the, uh, the forces. So, Did he uh, want you to take up the skills he had learned as a young lad? Well, I suppose so, but when I came back from the forces, the mill supported two households, so I couldn't see any way it could possibly support a third household. But anyway, most of the mills were closing by that time, and I, I honestly couldn't see a future. Hugh has done a wonderful job keeping it going for 30 years. It is mm. special, isn't it? Oh, because absolutely. so many yeah. of the other mills were closed down. Oh, yes. Small, uh-huh. individual There's lots of places. mills around here. All gone. All gone. And what mm. was it like, you know, going in and seeing your father at work and what he did? He wore the same things winter and summer. <laughs> very, very cold in the winter in the wool mill. But he didn't seem to feel the cold <laughs> and it was quite a job keeping the weather out <laughs> that was a constant worry and your and, father uh, kept on mm-hmm. with the mill until he was what age 80 
Really, he was he was weaving mm-hmm. right up until that mm-hmm. point. In, yes, in yes. the cold. In the cold. In, in the, the same cold. clothes he in was wearing <laughs> when you were a boy. Yes. Oh. Yes. Yes. Uh-huh. And his own tweed. <laughs> of course. <laughs> his own tweed jackets and things. Yeah, it was um, quite a hard life. Quite a hard life. I am weighed down by this large plastic covered bundle of blankets, cream coloured thick woolen blankets I can feel the texture even through my gloves yes. and they have the wonderful blanket stitch all along the end yes. and then inside the plastic bag it says November 1972 in pencil and it says good and what's that word there? Own use Own use These, these are Margaret Shepherds. These are yours Margaret Your yes. own blankets Oh yes, H- yes How and you know obviously made at the mill Made at the mill What's the story behind the blankets? Well each year after we clipped the sheep we would once the bags of wool were filled up, spare wool was left, not worth filling a part bag. So we would come up here with the wool, and Mr. Stewart made them into blankets. Duncan Stewart, it Duncan would have Stewart, been. yes, standing by his machinery, which he cared for so lovingly, and it was clicking along there, you know, just like a sewing machine. <laughs> he was such a friendly person, you know, these little red cheeks and his warm, warm smile, which welcomed you when you went into the mill. And he would say, more blankets? And I'd say, oh, yes, yes. Tweed this time? And I'd say, yes, if you can. And he was just so cooperative and so delightful to work with. And when you went to visit him with your wool, was he working? Well, he was working on other bits of wool which he'd bought in, I guess, and making tweeds and so on. He made the tweeds, I think, for a lot of the gamekeepers in the area, you see. So that's when I said, right, we'll have some tweed for couple of sports jackets and I had enough for a suit and a coat. <laughs> All made from the wool of oh, your yes, flock. Yes, yes. How wonderful. Margaret, I'm going to have to put these down because they're so heavy. <laughs> right. It's just it's such a lovely thought, just bringing your own wool straight yes. to a mill, isn't it? Well, he was, he was quite excited about it, I think, really. It's North Country Cheviot wool that's used, you see. That's better than the hill lambs wool. And what time of year was it? And well, we clipped the, ewe, the, clipped the sheep in June usually. So any time after that, when it was convenient for him of course, um, so that might be the month of August and by the time we got them it might be October or November. <laughs> Just when he needed the blankets. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. But we gave away a lot of them. And Did you ever stay? Did you ever sort of linger to see oh, what yes. it was all oh, about? I would watch him working the looms, you know. And <laughs> he was very proud of his work, really. Oh yes. He was such a nice person, it was always a pleasure, even if we weren't coming to collect the blankets. If we happened to be passing, we would pop in and say hello, just to be friendly, you know. Mm -hmm. He probably never saw anybody else all week. (laughs) Yes. But if you're contented and happy, you don't mind that. He wasn't out to make a fortune. He just wanted to be happy and as long as he had work to do. And he was a long line of people who just had a passion for this mill. And oh, they, yes. They learned the yes. skill and they yes. wove and, yes. and mm. lived and worked there. That's right. And then it was passed on to the next person. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then it became so dilapidated they had to stop altogether, of course. Yes. And for the first time in 200 years, the, the looms have not been uh, working. Been working. Mm-hmm. Yes, well... Hopefully it'll all be up and running again soon. Good, I hope so. Yeah, but you won't though be bringing we, any we don't have any sheep now. <laughs> we stopped keeping sheep. Mm-hmm. Mm. And are you looking forward to it being up and running again? Yes, How yes. How important do you think that is? I think it's quite important to keep some of these old 
customs going. And I'm quite sure I'll be buying some tweed if it's there, because it lasts and lasts and lasts. I've come up from the river, up the hillside, up into the bright open sunshine, and I'm with Ian Robertson, who's a local farmer, and we're in the Land Rover, and we're just driving across the field, and the sheep, of course, they respond straight away when they see you coming, Ian, and they think they're going to be fed. It's quite deep snow here now. <laughs> I think the dog wants to come as well, Ian. Tell me a little bit more about the flock you've got here. This is mostly Cheviot ewes, North Country Cheviot ewes, and I know block faced one that's set with the horns mm -hmm. and the, the block sheep are the rams they, they, they're they mating just now and they should lamb in the middle of April onwards and they're very distinctive because they're they're almost jet black yes, what, yes. what kind of breed is this? Zawarble Zawarble? yes uh -huh, right. uh -huh. and they're taller than the, the females aren't yes, they? They're, yes uh -huh. <laughs> their bellies are a little bit further from the snow that, that's, that's right. a good thing that's right, and yes. why are you doing that? Well, we had a folks problem with the, the traditional lambs, but the block lambs, the folks had said the tent it keeps the it keeps the um, foxes away a bit. Huh. Makes the fox think twice, maybe yes, just, yes, they just yes. don't recognise it so much as a as well, a lamb and an easy that's supper. That's right. That's right. I've just come up from Nakando Mill. Yes. And your father, father and, and your grandfather, grandfather? would uh -huh. have traditionally sold their wool to Nakando Mill. But that's where all the local farmers uh, sold their wool at that time. And then they went back to the wool mill for their blankets and also tweeds to make their suits. One farmer would say to another, well, it was bred in the condo, born in the condo, grew in the condo, and now it's worn in the condo. <laughs> <coughs> and maybe even buried in the condo, yes, if yes, you yes, think yes, about yes, it, in his right. best tweed yes, suit. Yes, yes. When you come to shear these sheep, yes. the mill will be up and running. Oh, will, yes, you, uh -huh. will you be at the door with your wool? Well, it will, we could be, or uh, uh, Mr Jones might come a forward before the time of shearing, and we might have a, a word with him. Uh -huh. A wee word? Would it be involving what you might get paid for your wool? Oh, well, we might just mention that, just at the, <laughs> the by door, yes. Uh -huh. Does it matter to you in sort of a sort of a sentimental way that your grandfather and your father both took their wool to the mill? Or are you a businessman through and through? I would be quite happy to sell it locally. More than happy. Uh -huh. Are you in need of a nice tweed suit? Uh, oh, well, I don't go about too often, but it wouldn't go wrong, put it that way. Well, if Ian does bring his uh, fleeces to Lucanda Wool Mill, this is, this is one of the places that they'll be brought into. And I'm back with Hugh Jones, and we're going to go into uh, one of the workshops here. And um, because the machinery actually is in bits on the workshop floor, isn't it? It is, yeah. yeah. Oh, it's lovely and warm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness, look at these great rollers, timbered rollers and cogs and wheels and... All sorts of things. It's like thousands of pieces of a jigsaw which are scattered all about. Just everywhere, Hugh. Well, yes. This is a new workshop which we uh, put up last year. And once it was built and we got possession of it, it enabled us to take all the carding and spinning machinery out of the mill. Uh, so we took it all to bits and uh, brought it all in here for cleaning, 
assessing and refurbishing, which is what we've been doing for the last year. And we're nearly at the end of that, you know. But the putting back together has yet to happen. Uh, will it be in here? No, what we'll do is once we get the... Um, in a couple of weeks' time, we should get the mill back and um, so we can start moving back in and we'll just move it bit by bit. It's, it's reverse order, if you like. It's a bit like take an exploded diagram and work backwards. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's quite a challenge. Well, let, let's just walk uh, down past some of the machinery and... Ailey Brown is also with us here in, in, um, in the workshop. And Ailey, your, your job is going to be about reconnecting people with the mill again. Yes, absolutely, and making sure the community can basically come back and enjoy it. And there's an awful lot to learn from being here as well. So the more people are engaged and involved, then that's part of really hoping there's a successful future. Because they really were connected to the mill, weren't they? The people down the river, up the river, the small farms along here? Absolutely. So everyone from farmers bringing in wool to be processed for blankets or for making into knitting yarn or for people to come and buy their knitting yarn, but also local school children. Certainly in the 1920s, they would come down for festive occasions and they actually, you know, it was really a central part of the community directly for the sort of fabrics and the manufacture but also very much just very much part of the community. And why do you really want them to come back though? Well I think it's really important for the future particularly this could really be a little centre of design there's no reason why not the children are already very enthusiastic I've been working with them towards woven artworks for an exhibition in Elgin in March so they can't wait till the moment that they can come back on site and reconnect with the place. And the market for tweed fabric is strong is it do you it's good globally it's very good you know you can um it's a big world out there if you like and i think it depends how well uh how well you tell your story how good your cloth is how good your design is and uh and and let's let, let's not mince words above all what the price is it's something very special and unique to Scotland in that people all over the world recognise tweed as something that comes from and is made in Scotland. And it never really goes out of fashion now. You know, it does come at times, as you told me, Hugh, sometimes it's more fashionable than other times, but people know about it. It's, it has a recognisable identity and being manufactured here, it has a really fantastic and authentic story behind it. So that, that is going to sell. Yeah. It's a fabric which, as you say, Ailey, it has, um, it has a, a wonderful history and has a connection to this valley, so that's very special. But it, it, it's, so that's its aesthetic qualities, yes. but it's hugely practical as well. Yes, absolutely. Well, the, the blending, the mixing of fibres to create a yarn that's actually a mixture of colours and then it's woven in a particular way, so you get a cloth that is not just one plain colour. It has a kind of camouflage effect and often when people were designing a tweed when they're creating it for an individual estate they would be looking to the landscape to heather to the colors of the water and basically that would be what they would use to put together that design so if someone was wearing that and going out to shoot something to hunt something they would be invisible they would be camouflaged against that landscape so that'd be a very practical fabric for gamekeepers gillies people out you know shooting to wear basically and that was really the forerunner to khaki and to camouflage uniforms that armies wear all over the world now so it's actually a really significant point in the history of fashion it has to be financially viable though this isn't it it just can't be um a museum even a living museum 
it has to pay its way, this fabric. Yes, yes, it does. And uh, I think uh, we're not asking for an awful lot of the market. And, and actually that market is, uh, it, it's always changing. The, the, these are fabrics which are all, have been used now for, for hundreds of years and are still used. I've been in London for a few days um, just now and the, the number of different tweeds I've seen in really very modern garments and used in a very modern way rather than just a, um, a very uh, staid uh, hacking jacket or whatever and, and, and seen this on young people as well who have looked really um, uh, very good, very good and, and, and a lot of style but who's to say it'll be there in two years time it would probably be there in seven years time you know, it comes and it goes it runs in cycles but I, I, I think it'll always be there